We are continuing through our series in the Gospel of John. Go ahead and have your Bibles ready in the Gospel of John. I'd like to begin with a simple question. It's this. Would you recognize the voice of truth if you heard it? Would you recognize the voice of truth if you heard it? In John chapter 1, there are a number of claims made about who Jesus is, and that's what we're studying throughout the book of John. It, it just keeps coming up all the way through his gospel. People keep wondering. They keep asking, who is Jesus? And there are claims made about who he is all throughout this gospel. And so as we study it, we're going to keep coming back to that question. And today, there are a number of claims made about who Jesus is. And we're going to take a look at those claims, but just listen carefully to some of the things that are said about who Jesus is. Verse 29, we looked at last week, John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He repeats that claim about who Jesus is in verse 35, 36. Uh, verse 35, John the Baptist, he's standing there with two of his disciples. We'll talk about who they are in just a moment. But Jesus walks by, and John looked at him, and he repeats it. Look, there is the Lamb of God. We go down to verse 36, and we find out that uh, there's another claim. Oh, that's verse 36. Let's go down to verse 41. Verse 41, Andrew says, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. Go down to verse 45. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote. Verse 49. Verse 49 says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. There are a lot of claims being made about who Jesus is in this short section of Scripture. We start back in verse 29 where John the Baptist last week claiming to be the voice of truth. Remember that from verse 23 when they asked, who are you, John? Who are you? And he says, I'm the voice. I'm, I'm just a voice shouting in the wilderness, make, make the way ready for the coming of the Lord, for the coming of the Messiah. So he claims that he's a voice of truth, and, and John says, Jesus is the Lamb of God. And it begins this chain reaction where five first century fishermen, they all come to the same conclusion about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. What's the Messiah? Messiah is the promised, anointed one of God who would deliver Israel and establish the kingdom of God. Last week, we saw that John the Baptist was asked by this group of, of um, Jewish elites, ruling class, those uh, who had authority in Jerusalem. They came out and they questioned John, who are you? Are you, are you the Messiah? John, are you the Messiah? And, and John said, no, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Well, how do we know that his voice is a voice of truth? I mean, people make claims every day that aren't true. That happens every day in your life. It happens every day in my life. People make claims that just aren't true. Have you ever noticed that there are competing news organizations. And they will rep report on the same story. They will report on the same event. They will see it with their own eyes. 
And yet they will come to a conclusion about what is happening and what it means. And, and the story is, is the exact opposite from one another. One commentator or news organization will say, the sky is a beautiful blue today. Hmm. Okay. And the competing organization will say, ah, oh, no, 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 no. No, it's not. We have decided that the color blue is an arbitrary construct made up by a toxic masculinity to oppress people into a binary gender stereotype. Blue has got to go. Oh. What color is the sky? The sky is palette. It's whatever you want it to be. Oh. Well, obviously, both reports cannot both be true. So how, how do we cut through the nonsense? How do we cut through the noise to recognize, well, which one of these voices is actually the voice of truth? Would you recognize the voice of truth if you heard it? The Bible claims to be the voice of truth, the authority on truth when it comes to morality. The secular culture also claims to be the authority, the voice of truth on morality. And for some reason, they say, that the, the secular culture says the exact opposite of what we see in the Word of God. Have you noticed that? It's, it's almost like some bratty teenager rebelling against his or her parents, wanting to do the exact opposite of whatever it is that mom and dad say. Oh, oh, God says that this is a list of sins? Is that what God says? Okay, well, we're going to take the same list, and we're going to call it a list of virtues, and these virtues need to be celebrated. And I'll tell you what, anyone who says that, that our list of virtues, you know, the, the, the list that God calls sin, any, any of our virtues, if you say that we're wrong, you're the sinner. Right? It's, it's almost like that. Like whatever it is that God's word says, you know, we're the opposite. And what we say is virtuous and what God says is simple. It's, it's crazy. There, there, there's two competing voices. How do you know which one is the voice of truth? How do we know for sure? Would you recognize the voice of truth if you heard it? So many voices competing for our attention. There are so many voices competing for your heart, for my heart, for our desires, for our minds. How, how, do, we, how do we pick out the voice of truth from among all the noise? We're going to go back to our text this morning, and we're going to listen to these voices claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, and we're going to look for a pattern, because there's a pattern that emerges as each one of these guys comes to the same conclusion about who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. Let's start in verse 35. So verse 35, the following day, John, John the Baptist He's standing there with two of his disciples. And Jesus walks by, and John looked at him, and he declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around, and he saw them following. What do you, what do you want? What do, what do you guys want? Why are you following me? 
And they replied, Rabbi, means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see. Come and see, he said, about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place he was staying. They remained with him the rest of the day. So they spend time. Who are we talking about here? Well, verse 40 identifies Andrew as one of them. Simon Peter's brother, which we'll meet in a moment. He was one of the men who, was heard, what, who heard what John said and then, and then followed Jesus. Most Bible scholars agree that the, the other disciple of John the Baptist, who then became a disciple of Jesus, was John the Apostle, the author of this gospel. So last week we hear John the Baptist make this claim that Jesus is the Lamb of God, which means that he is the one who can provide divine forgiveness for sin. John makes this claim to Andrew, makes this claim to John the Apostle, and what's interesting is they decide, let's go check this out. Let's go spend some time with Jesus. So they trust John the Baptist, right? They, they're his, his disciples. But they don't just quit their jobs. They don't just immediately sell their f- fishing business. They go and investigate. They go and, and spend time with Jesus. Well, what's their conclusion? What, what conclusion, after spending time with Jesus, what conclusion do they come to? Well, we find out in verse 41. Andrew then went to find his brother Simon and told him, here's what he said, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. Now that's a title. The, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word. That's a title. Uh, Christ is the same in Greek. And it simply means that he is the anointed one. He is the chosen one of God who will deliver Israel, who will establish the kingdom of God. But Peter also does not just immediately say, well, awesome, I I guess we're all going to quit our jobs. Let's sell everything we have. Let's sell the fishing business. Let's go into full-time ministry. You know, way to go, bro. You did it. You found the Messiah. He says, I want to meet him. I want to spend some time with him. And so that's what happens. He goes to meet Jesus. He wants to spend some time with him. He wants to investigate this claim about Jesus. So he goes in verse 42, Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. And looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter, which means rock. So Jesus meets Simon for the first time and he says something kind of curious. You're gonna, I'm going to change your name from Simon to Peter. Okay. What, what? I mean, honestly, if someone says that to you the first time you meet them, what, what are you supposed to do with that? What was Simon supposed to do with that information? Well, that's where the story concludes here as far as Peter's interaction at the time with Jesus, but that wasn't the end of the story. Luke's gospel actually uh, gives us more information as to this interaction between Jesus and Peter. It was a different day. According to Luke's gospel, a different day, Jesus was uh, by the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching about the kingdom of God, a, a message very similar to what John the Baptist was preaching. And a big crowd is gathering, and it got to the point where there's so many people, there are people who are having a hard time hearing. And so Jesus looked around, and there's some boats there. One of them belongs to Peter. He knows Peter. He's already met Peter. 
And so he goes down, hops in Peter's boat, and asks Peter if he'd push out a little from shore so that people could hear. No problem. They pull out. Jesus preaches. He continues that. And when that's done, he tells Peter, let's go out a little farther. Let's go out in some deep water. And that's when Jesus demonstrates a divine miracle with fish in the net, if you know that story, and uh, demonstrates his divine power through a miracle. And that's when Peter responds and he believes, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. So it was a little bit different for Peter than it was for, for Andrew and John. We read on. Verse 43, what happens next? Well, then the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And there he found Philip and said to him, come follow me. Now, we'll just pause on that for a moment. Jesus found Philip. It doesn't say that he met Philip by random accident. He found him. You might say, well, okay, well, fine can mean random. It can mean accidental, yes. So you can find a penny on the ground. And so the word found can definitely mean chance. It can mean random accident. But you wouldn't normally use that word when you meet someone. When you meet someone that you don't know, typically you just use the word meet. I met someone. I was at the store. I was at the airport. Right? You weren't planning on meeting. You met someone for the first time. I met them is what you would normally say. Found is typically a word that we use in that context if there's someone that you are specifically looking for. Now, you might say, thanks for the unnecessary less lesson in language. Fine, that's fair. Here, here's why I think that is important. I go to verse 44 and it says that Philip was from Bethsaida. Well, who's from Bethsaida? Andrew and Peter. So just follow along here with what I'm thinking. Uh, it looks to me, it, it, within the context here, Philip and, and uh, he's from Bethsaida. That's where Andrew and Peter are from. I admit I, I, I could be wrong on this, but it just seems the logical flow, sequence of events in the context, plausible that John the Baptist tells Andrew, about Jesus. Andrew tells Peter about Jesus. And then Peter and Andrew, when Jesus is going to Galilee, is it possible that they say, hey, when you go to Galilee, you, you need to look for our friend Philip. Philip's a great guy. You need to look for Philip and tell him. Meet Philip. I, don't, I can't prove that, but what I know for sure is, is what happens next. Jesus spent time with Philip. We see that in the, in the text. And then and Jesus called Philip to follow him as a disciple. And Philip was convinced after spending time with Jesus, he was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. How do I know? Verse 45. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told Nathanael, here's what he said about Jesus. We have found the very person that Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. We found him. We found the Messiah. That was his conclusion after spending some time with Jesus. I love Nathaniel's response in verse 46. Uh, so Philip says, hey, we found the Messiah. He's, uh, he's, from, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response was, Nazareth? What? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what he said. And you're like, well, that's kind of harsh. What's wrong with with Nazareth, nothing. It's a, it's a nice place. There's nothing wrong, nothing bad about Nazareth. It just, it's a small mountain village. And I love it because it just shows 
that things about normal life, small town rivalries, condescending attitudes towards other towns that aren't your town, you know, those, those kind of things have been around a long time, still happens today. We'll, we'll test it out here. Uh, can, can anything good come from Tyrone? I don't think so, right? Any Tyrone people here? Any Tyrone? All right. I figured I'd be safe. That's like far enough away. It wouldn't offend anyone. If you're from Tyrone, I love you. I'm just kidding. Verse 47. I just, I just love the, 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 the way that that's described. It's an honest reaction, uh, the way that people even talk today. Verse 47, what happens next? Jesus then goes to meet, or Nathaniel goes to meet Jesus. And watch this interaction. Um, Philip says, come. Come see for yourself. He says, all right, it's fine. As they approached... So they haven't said a word to each other. They haven't, you know, whatever greeting they were going to do, as Nathaniel is approaching Jesus, Jesus sees him coming and he says this to him. Never met him. Now here, here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. That's nice. But you might wonder, well, how does Jesus know that about Nathaniel? We never met him. And we see that Nathaniel's response is, is in line with what you might think in, in a comment like that. How do you know this about me? How do you know me? That was his response. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you know? And so Jesus responds back, because I saw you. I saw you. While you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you, before Philip found you. Wow. Look at Nathaniel's response to, to Jesus when, when he says that. He says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. You are, these are just titles that mean the same thing as Messiah. You're the Messiah. And you read that and you're like, okay, I'm trying to follow the, the line here of how did he go from major skeptic, which he was, really, Nazareth. How did he go from this major skeptic to all him believer, like, this is, this is the Son of God. This is the promised Messiah. This seems like a pretty quick turnaround there, all from this one uh, statement about being under a fig tree. What was it that moved in his, in his heart? So here's what I want to do. I want to read verses 50 and 51, give you a little bit more context, and then go back and hopefully make sense of this. Verse 50, Jesus asked him, Do you believe this? Just because I told you I had seen you under uh, the fig tree. I, you'll see greater things than this. And then he said, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down. And the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Might seem like a, uh, an oddly random type of statement, but it is... It is uh, specific, and these men would have known exactly what he was talking about when he said it. This picture of heaven opening that Jesus describes and angels coming and going, it is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 28. When Abraham's grandson, Jacob, experienced this supernatural revelation from God of this stairway to heaven. You can read about it in Genesis 28. He's asleep. Jacob experiences this revelation uh, in a dream. He sees the stairway to heaven. There's angels. And at the top of the stairway is the Lord. 
And, and the Lord promises that his descendants would have a permanent possession of the land of Israel. So that's the, the Genesis 28 reference that he's describing here. And he uses that to identify himself. He's saying, I am that stairway. I am the revelation from heaven. I'm the access to God. So you take all of that, you take what Jesus said at the end of the chapter, and you go back and let's think a little bit more about what happened under the fig tree and Jesus referencing seeing him under the fig tree. Here's what a lot of Bible scholars think happened that day. We know that Nathaniel was a student of the Old Testament. And it was common that students of Scripture would often study Scripture under a tree, under a fig tree, in the shade of a fig tree. Uh, so, so much so that it was almost like a figure of speech. If you said, I was spending some time under the fig tree, people would understand, first century people would understand that what you meant was, I was, I was having my quiet time in, in God's Word. I was studying the Scriptures. I was meditating on the Word of God. That's what that phrase meant. And everyone understood that at the time. And so what if, take all of these different contextual clues, what if Nathaniel, that morning, he was sitting under his fig tree, which we know that he was. Jesus says he was. He doesn't push back. He's impressed that Jesus knew where he was. But what if that also means that he was most likely reading, reflecting on Scripture? What if it was the story of Jacob? And what if, uh, as he's reading about Jacob, if you know anything about his history, Jacob was the Israelite ancestor who lied to his dad, who tricked his brother. He was deceitful, had to leave home as a fugitive because of all of his deceit. What if uh, Nathaniel is reading about Jacob and reading that portion of his story and thinking and praying, Lord, I don't want to be like this. Help make me a man of integrity. I want to be a man of honesty. What if that's what he was reflecting on under the fig tree that day? If that's what was happening, imagine he's sitting there and he's, just, he's praying, he's thinking about Jacob's story. I want to be a man of integrity. I don't want to be a man of deceit. Help me, Lord. And then Philip comes along. And Philip says, hey, let's go. I, we, I, we found the Messiah. Come, come meet him. And the skeptical Nathaniel gets up and approaches Jesus, and the first words that he hears from Jesus are, you are an honest man. You are a man of integrity. You're not a man of deceit. You're not a man of guile or trickery. Hmm. It's an interesting thing to say to someone. It's a nice compliment. But what if it's tied to what was going on in Nathaniel's morning? So the question, how do you know me, could mean... How do you know my character? We just met. You don't know anything about me. It could mean that. It could also mean, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do you know what I was thinking? How do you know what I was praying about this morning? That's oddly specific. How do you know that? So when Jesus said, well, because I saw you under the fig tree, it may be that Nathaniel wasn't just impressed that Jesus knew where he was, which is impressive, but Jesus knew what he was reading, what he was thinking about, what he was praying about. 
If that's what happened, it would make what Jesus says in verse 50 and 51 even more convincing to Nathanael as he references Jacob a second time. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. Every one of these guys spent time with Jesus. They knew the word of God. And they came to the same conclusion. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if we were just to read through uh, almost like a rapid fire uh, setting. You know, you're reading through this in one sitting, and it almost seems like uh, a simple claim is made about Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. These claims are made, and it almost feels like it's, it's really fast. If it almost looks as if the, these guys just mindlessly started following Jesus around, but that's not who they were. These were not the kind of guys who would just listen to any voice claiming to be the truth. When John the Baptist said, look, now these are his disciples, look, it's the Lamb of God. Andrew and John knew what that phrase meant. They knew what it meant because they had been listening to John the Baptist teach about the coming of Messiah. And so what'd they do? Well, they went and they spent the day with Jesus. They asked him questions. They got to know him. They didn't immediately just quit their jobs, sell their fishing business just because someone claimed to be the voice of truth. They took time to investigate Jesus. They took time to observe him, to compare what they knew about the Old Testament to who Jesus was before they made that all-in commitment to follow Jesus. And of course, some of them were eyewitness. Like Peter, eyewitness to a miracle, eyewitness to the divine power of Jesus, and that's what convinced him. Here's my point. These guys were not the kind of men that were easily manipulated. They heard a voice, make a claim, and they took the time to investigate. They took the time to engage their minds. They knew the word of God, and because they knew the word of God, they could recognize the voice of truth when they heard it. My college experience was certainly not as intense as the college experiences, secular college experiences that many students uh, have today. But I had some of that. No, I don't think at the level, not even close to the level of what uh, maybe a secular college would experience today uh, when it comes to these competing voices of truth uh, that are not just the opposite of what God's word says, but like violently antagonistic <laughs> towards what the word of God says. But then and now, there, there, there are. You, you step on any secular campus and you're gonna, it's not gonna take you long to hear competing voices claiming to be the voice of truth. Voices that sound very, very different from the word of God. Well, would you, if you're in that setting, would you recognize the voice of truth if you heard it? The History Channel claims that, that Jesus did not die on the cross. They'll have these, uh, these really smart people that they'll interview. They have credentials that uh, say that they're experts, and uh, their conclusion is that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Uh, he survived that. He went on to marry uh, Mary Magdalene, and they had a family. That's the story that's told from a lot of these uh, documentaries on, on, on the History Channel. Well, that's not what the Bible uh, describes as the story of Jesus. He actually died. He was buried, and three days later, he rose again. He was the sacrificial payment 
to appease God's wrath against sin, and he proved that when he rose from the dead, when he conquered death, when he conquered sin. And then 40 days later, returned to heaven. That's what Scripture teaches us. So these two different claims about Jesus can't both be true. One story is true and one isn't. Would you recognize the voice of truth if you heard it? Friday was the march of life in Washington, D.C. Thousands of people braved terrible weather. I really wish they'd move it to June. I think that would be a better, I mean, it would be a better time to have it. But thousands of people, tougher than I am, they, they uh, braved the terrible weather to go and celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade to try to change people's hearts, to try to change people's minds on the issue of abortion. And so, you know, we, we as a church, we are unapologetic, we are unashamed, we, we are a strong supporter of saving babies from abortion. That's who we are as a church. And yes, admittedly, our argument that life begins at conception is rooted in our biblical worldview of the eternal soul. That is absolutely true. But our minds are also engaged in this issue. We can see the baby through 3D ultrasound. You can see it. We, we have yet to see, unless you've seen something I haven't, we have yet to see anything but a human baby come out at birth. That's the only thing that ever happens. We know statistically, they, they keep track of this data, we know that less than 1% of abortions performed are because of rape, incest, or danger to mom's life. So what's the other 99%? We know that the origin story of Planned Parenthood is tied to founder Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger, she was an activist for forced sterilization. She was an activist for eugenics. She was a racist. That's the founder of Planned Parenthood. That's the DNA of that organization. Well, how do we know that that DNA continued? Well, because since 1973, nine million babies have been aborted through, aborted through Planned Parenthood. I, I, I look at that number and I'm thinking, this is a very strange organizational name for an organization that seems intently determined on eliminating parenthood. I don't understand the, the title of the organization. Now, that's my voice. That is the voice of those who were gathered in D.C. on Friday. And we speak, we speak about life, but it's not the only voice you hear on the issue, is it? We're not the only voice you hear on that issue. There's a loud, passionate, competing voice on the other side of that issue. Would you recognize the voice of truth if you heard it? Here's just a few observations from the, the text that I think are really, really helpful when, when we're trying to pick out the voice of truth among all of the noise, among all of the conflicting voices that are out there. Just a few observations. Number one, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, yeah, they were simple fishermen, but they apparently all knew the word of God. They knew enough about what the prophet said, about what Moses said, about Messiah, to know that they had found him. 
They had an anchor point in Scripture to be able to compare what they knew from the Word of God to what was standing in front of them in Jesus. And that tells me that that if we want to be able to recognize the voice of truth, we need to have a solid baseline of truth. We need to have an anchor point for truth. And it cannot be public opinion. It cannot be whatever's trending online. It cannot be whatever a celebrity tells us. God's word is a trustworthy baseline. It is a trustworthy anchor point of truth that you and I can be confident in as we test claims of truth against what is actually true. There's one voice that we can know for sure is a voice of truth. It's God's voice. Every other voice is suspect to failure or even deceit. And it doesn't matter what the, where the voice comes from. It could be pastors, politicians, scientists, teachers, salespeople, your friends. They may all have a different conclusion on the same subject, the same issue. Well, then, okay, well, how do I know which voice to listen to? Simple question. Which one of these voices lines up with the voice of truth? That's all you have to do. Which one of those voices lines up with the voice of truth, with God's word? That's the voice of truth. The other observation I would make about the text that we read this morning is that these guys, they all spent time with Jesus. They concluded that Jesus was the voice of truth after spending time with him. And I think that's still true today. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more convinced we will be that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the forgiver of sins, the giver of eternal life. Listen to what Jesus said. I'm going to take you to John 10. We're almost done here. John chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Jesus talks about his relationship to those who have trusted in him as their savior, as their Lord. He talks about this relationship that he has with them. And if, you're, if, if that's you, if you trusted Christ as your savior, he's talking about you. Verse three, the gatekeeper. He identifies himself later as the gatekeeper. He opens the gate for him. The sheep, that's the followers of Christ. That's the ones who have trusted Christ as their savior. The sheep recognize his voice and come to him. They follow him. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them. They follow him. Why do they follow him? Because they know his voice. And verse, verse 5, super important. They won't follow a stranger. Why won't they follow a stranger? Why don't they get confused? They hear a voice says, let's go, time to eat. We've got green pastures over here. Come to the water. They, they hear a voice. Why won't they follow a stranger? Well, they'll run away from the stranger because they don't know the stranger's voice. They know the voice of the good shepherd. They know the voice of truth. They know the voice of Jesus because they've spent time with him. I think the more time we spend with Jesus in prayer, in worship, in the study of his word, the more clearly you and I will know his voice. The more confident we will be in our ability to quickly pick out the voice of truth among the noise. My wife Angie and I, 
we, we watch Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune in the evening now because old age is creeping up on us. That's what's happening to us. I understand, you know, that, that that's what's going on. But we, we do. We, we enjoy watching Jeopardy and, and Wheel of Fortune in the evenings. And, and what I've noticed is this about Jeopardy. I have noticed that these brilliant minds will stand there and, and, you know, the different categories and you have to say it in the form. It's a lot going on, right? And you have to be sharp. You have to be quick and sharp. There'll be oftentimes they'll, they'll read it. And I'm like, ah, I know that one. And it's too late. I can't think of it quick enough. And they're, so they're sharp. And, and they'll know things like every river in the country of Tanzania. Like they know all of the names of these rivers in some random weird country that I've never heard of. And they will know who wrote some stupid poem from the 1700s that I've never heard of, right? They'll know these things. And yet, what I have noticed consistently lately is that any Bible category, and they'll read it, and they'll all stand there with the same look. Uh, it's, it's incredible. These are brilliant minds. And, and so what that is telling me is that Biblical literacy, we see the same thing happen uh, when it comes to uh, polling or, or different studies that people do in America. Biblical literacy is going down, 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 year after year. And it's, and it's not just among those who want nothing to do with God. Unfortunately, biblical literacy is something that's been declining even among Christians, even among those who go to church. And, and it's concerning, right? That bothers me. It's, it's, it's why I took an entire year last year to work through the minor prophets. That's biblical literacy that we need to know that helps us understand the New Testament better. It's why we are offering things like Rooted, you know, these discipleship trainings like Rooted. You know, we, we just think those things are important. So we, we want to we do our best as, you know, from a church leadership standpoint to help um, help you be more biblically literate, but can I just be honest? The, the bulk of the responsibility is on you. My challenge to you is to, is to make the understanding, to make the study and understanding of God's word a prioritized commitment in your own life. And there's just some practical ways to, to do that. Um, Obviously, you have to be reading the Word of God, but I think it's important to have, I have some samples up here of what we call a Bible commentary. Bible commentary, and you're reading your Bible, and, and just ask questions, be curious, explore. And so, like, for example, this morning when I was talking about the fig tree, when I was talking about the reference from Genesis 28, well, those might not be things that you just automatically know from the text because we're not first century Jews. And so we don't, we don't pick up on those things automatically. Well, that's where a Bible commentator, uh, who is a Bible scholar, who has taken the time to research the original context, the, uh, the phraseology of, of the first century and, and how the original audience would have understood that comment, they take the time to study those things, put them into books so that it's easy to access and understand. And it just brings to life the, the text for us. Helps us have a deeper understanding of what we are reading and, and, and how we might apply it to our lives. Uh, there are study Bibles. If, if you don't have a study Bible, that can be really good. 
uh, that has uh, study notes. Uh, while you're doing your quiet time under your fig tree, whatever your fig tree might be, uh, when you're having that quiet time, those study notes can be really helpful to, to help you have a deeper understanding of what you're reading and how to apply it to your life. There's different books on how to study the Bible. One of the things that I have noticed about uh, people that absolutely love Jesus, absolutely love Jesus, kind, compassionate, you know, they're, they're, they're good moral people, all of these things. I wouldn't criticize anything about uh, the way they're living their lives. But I have noticed that even those, sometimes you have someone who's like that, who's been in church their whole life. Uh, they believe the gospel. They believe the word of God is, is uh, inerrant, the authority, all of that. And, and yet, sometimes they will come to a conclusion on a verse, let's say. They'll quote a verse and is wildly out of context for what the verse actually means. Uh, and, and they don't know it. Uh, and that happens sometimes. Uh, and, and so how, how do you fix that? Sometimes our emotions or a, a lack of understanding in, into what the original thought was to the original audience, all that. Sometimes uh, you read a verse and it's out of context for what it actually means. And I read it and I'm like, oh, well, that applies to me in this way because that's how my emotional uh, needs are right now, this issue, whatever. There's all kinds of weird things that can happen. And if you understand how to study the Word of God, uh, it just helps, it helps alleviate a lot of those kind of bad interpretations of Scripture. My point is, the more seriously that we, that we study uh, and have an understanding of God's Word, the more clearly we're going to know His, His voice, 